I would love to be able to kill the inner bully in all women. Obviously, I would love to also be able to get rid of the outer bully, which I'm currently working on. But I think the truest end goal for this would be to not just destroy the external narrative for women, but to change our inner narrative and to really teach women that they have so much profound worth. They exist so far beyond the numbers on a fucking scale or the numbers written on a measuring tape. Welcome to Shameless, the pop culture podcast for smart people who love dumb stuff. Today, we're joined by the incredible Jamila Jamil, a woman who probably doesn't need an introduction, but of course, we'll give you one anyway. Jamila is a British actress, former radio host, writer, and activist who rose to global fame through her role as Tahani Al-Jamil on The Good Place, alongside co-stars Kristen Bell and Ted Danson. She is also the brainchild behind the Iway movement, a force of more than one million women who band together to challenge dangerous diet culture on platforms like Instagram. Jamila is a seminal voice of our generation and using that voice for people who exist in the margins, be that trans people, people with a disability and young women and girls, has made her one of the most adored celebrities in recent history. We were blown away, not just that Jamila wanted to come on our podcast, but that she was so honest and thoughtful with her insights. We cannot tell you how much we relished this opportunity to chat together and hope you enjoy the next 45 minutes as much as we did. Here's Jamila Jamil. Jamila Jamil, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. This is a huge pinch me moment for Zara and I. Thank you for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. We are very excited and we want to start where we're starting at the moment with everyone because we're in the middle of a pandemic and a lot is going on and the world is very weird. But we saw you recently got a dog. So how is that helping your state of mind? Good. Animals are so grounding and they don't give, they're, not, they're so unaware of what's happening outside of really just their food bowl and your lap and I think that's been really refreshing because I've been such an addict when it comes to my phone and just sort of a doom addict just watching the news and just constantly feeding on the horror and terror online and social media has really just become people screaming at each other there's no more comedy or like memes going on obviously because of what's happening in the world and I find everything so volatile outside of just my little puppy and so I think he's been like a really good reminder of just my own humanity and an excuse for me to get off my phone and get out of the house. They're so good for anxiety as well I find. Mm. I actually got a puppy in this I think in the same fortnight that you did Jamila and they look like twins and it's so good just to bury your face into their fur and just have them lie on top of you. They're like an anxiety blanket but the best form right? Yeah I feel my heart rate slow down when he's falling asleep on me and he's just God, I should have done this earlier. I can't believe I waited till my 30s. It would have completely <laughs> changed my childhood having a dog. And so now if I ever go on to have children, I'm definitely, I'm going to make sure that we have puppies everywhere. <laughs> Jamila, the question we ask every In Conversation guest is, what are you reading, watching, or listening to at the moment that you would recommend to other women? So I, God, I mean, I've been 
first of all, watching I May Destroy You, which is one of the greatest TV shows I've ever seen that touches on like the nuances of sexual assault, unlike anything. Do you guys have that over there? No, I need, I think I need to access it illegally or something because everyone's been talking about it and we're, Australia is so far behind. I have such FOMO. Illegally access it. I'm telling you, <laughs> legally download that program. It's unfucking believable. And I've also been watching a different film every single day of the lockdown. So we are like five and a half months in of all of the old classics and it's just given me this wonderful infusion of nostalgia and a reminder of life when I was a child all my favorite old films uh, just life when it was simpler and better and I think that art has the ability to really transport you to a better place in your head and I remember that as a like a sick or lonely teenager film and tv were the things that carried me through my hardest moments and so while I definitely don't think that actors or artists are by any stretch of the imagination the most important people in the world or very important at all I do think that I'm incredibly grateful to all the people who made these things this art that I found super comforting I think there is a real sense of comfort though that comes from stuff that feels very familiar particularly at a time like this yeah and I think comfort is the goal I'm not trying to develop a six-pack or create a new skill or learn a new instrument and no no shade to anyone who is I think that that's great if you can utilize this time to be super creative and productive but I personally I'm not like that I don't function that well around this much anxiety and I think that we have to normalize just surviving and not expecting people to come out of this pandemic thinner or smarter or necessarily that much I think we should be more socially educated but I I don't put pressure on myself to pick up a new skill etc or become an athlete I I just want to get through all of this and I don't think I think there's a lot of kind of I feel like there's a lot of pressure to come out of this like a hugely evolved person and I think really if you just come out of this a better and kinder person that's the best anyone could wish for. What were you like as a kid? I mean, you touched on some of the fact that film and TV was a huge source of comfort for you mm. back then as well. What was your personality like back then? I was very shy. I was very the opposite of how I am now. Very repressed, very lonely, bad at making friends. I was also deaf for the majority of the first 12 years of my life. And so I would kind of go through periods of losing my hearing, have an operation, get my hearing back. And I think that that also contributed to huge social awkwardness. And then around the age of 12, I developed a very serious eating disorder, which I think naturally makes you a very secretive and isolated person because you don't want anyone to, A, I wasn't that great at making friends anyway, but B, I cut off even my own kind of the people in my own household just so that they wouldn't be able to monitor how little I was eating. So I was definitely, uh, I was a little weirdo, frankly. What's your earliest memory of struggling with body shame or I guess feeling that sensation that you want to shrink? I can literally pinpoint it to an exact moment, which is weird, because I loved my body when I was younger. I just loved having a big belly. I used to push it out because I was so proud of my big mm-hmm. tummy. I just thought it was the greatest <laughs> thing ever. And I loved having squishy thighs. Like I was such an unselfconscious child. I feel so sad when I hear about six-year-olds and eight-year-olds nowadays developing eating disorders because I was so blissfully unaware of the way that I looked until I was 12. And then in a maths class, when they were trying to teach us about, I think, like collecting data for surveys or something, they weighed all of the girls in the class and then like put the weight on a kind of like a chart, put everyone's weight with their name. And I was the heaviest girl in my class in the whole year because I was also one of the tallest, but I was chubby. And I got made so much fun of for the rest of the week throughout the school. And I, that was such a defining moment for me, for me to realize that my social status and my importance and my worth in this world and my, and how much I deserve respect relies upon the numbers on a scale. 
And so that messaging went straight in. And that was just as heroin chic was taking off in our kind of mainstream society where you were supposed to emulate the look of famine, the look of someone who consumes no food, only heroin. And so I was, it was just a perfect storm for an eating disorder in an already, you know, a teenage girl at an all girls school, which is in, in itself just a nightmare. <laughs> is that period a kind of blur for you or do you have memories of how long it lasted? No, I think it, I, I remember that very vividly. I remember every single time I would hide food and all the tricks that I developed and how much I was standing in front of the mirror crying and hating myself and never trying never to leave the house. And I, it's a very damaging time. And I think it's because of how potently and like how vividly I remember it that I'm so passionate now in this like 14 year fight I've had against eating disorder culture. I don't think I would rally this hard if I don't remember quite how traumatized I was. And it it lasted so long beyond my teens. Like even after I stopped actively starving myself, the eating disorder brain stays with you for decades. Like, you know, I've really only just been able to get rid of it in the last four years. That voice in my head that would code food, code clothing, that would monitor other women's weight, my weight, and just you know, I stopped weighing myself at thirty because I was allowing a weighing scale to decide for me every morning to tell me. And dictate how I how I was allowed to feel that day. Like, are you going to have a good day or not? Is how you would decide whether or not you were going to, whether or not the pounds had gone up or down on the scale. And mm. I think so many women still do that to themselves, especially during lockdown. We're seeing a huge weight obsession, a huge body obsession, because the summer bo- we can't any longer. I know it's not summer where you are, but you know we're not allowed to trick people into the kind of beach body obsession now because people can't go out to the beach. So now it's lockdown body. That's the new mm-hmm. beach body, and it's just so toxic. But yeah, I remember it vividly, and it stayed with me for a really long time. You began your career at Channel 4. You then moved on to the BBC where you worked up to become the first solo female presenter of the Radio 1 chart show. I am curious, like you're clearly someone who's so dedicated to your career and loves your career so much. Did that kind of flourishing process and that kind of success early on in life give you a sense of worth that you perhaps weren't feeling beforehand? No. <laughs> no. I think um, I think Hollywood's uh, and like show business is a really dangerous uh, industry for a woman, especially just generally, but especially if she's had an eating disorder when you're younger, because then you get you get you kind of the pendulum swings both ways in which you become over congratulated when you're thin and you have like mass acceptance which fully reinforces the messaging that you picked up as a child that I will be loved and I'll be worth more if I'm thin and then if you gain any weight which I did when I was 26 it was about seven or eight years ago then you get berated and bullied and singled out and paparazzi camp outside your house day and night and call you a fat c word to your face that word rhymes with bunt for anyone who isn't clear Uh, (laughs) and you and then that reinforces all of your fears around like oh I'm worthless and I deserve to be treated like a like an animal I'm I deserve to be dehumanized because I am and I'm lesser than and I'm taking up too much space so I actually think this industry was a disaster for someone with my mindset but also has given me the platform to be able to try to warn everyone else so what a double-edged sword yeah 
It was really interesting. I found it really interesting. I watched an interview that you did with the BBC, I think it was in 2018, and you said at that time when you started entering, you know, the music industry that you remember seeing all these headlines when you took over from Alexa Chung and stuff that said like, move over Alexa Chung, the Mm. new girl's in town or this new girl's in town. And you noted that before you'd even started the job, you'd been pitted against the woman who'd come before you. Talk to us about that experience of being publicly pitted against other women. Constantly, it's like me move over Priyanka Chopra, move over Lily Singh. Like, if it's only allowed to be one woman in any given room, and that's the mentality that exists within patriarchy. And it isn't a reality; it's just a mentality. And they've convinced us that it's real, so that we will therefore see each other as a threat. And that, I believe, is a direct and very blatant attempt to control us, right? Because if we are divided, then we are easier to conquer. And so they know that as an alliance, we would be able to, we would be much harder to gaslight and to abuse if we were to form a wall and a sisterhood. And we saw perfect proof of that with Me Too, that when women come together, we can make a big fucking change. And that's why, because they are so terrified of us, they have kept us apart and turned us against one another. And it's just so ridiculous because all we should be doing is making space for as many of each other as we can because we are safer in numbers and and we can support each other. And, you know, we only just learned that a lot of us have been going through all of the same things, silently suffering and not telling each other because we didn't want to let anyone in. There was so much more bitchiness in this industry until two years ago. And I'm so grateful for the Me Too movement for having really elevated women's union. I would say. Did you see that hyper-competitiveness or hypercriticalness of other women manifest in yourself? Because I know you spoke about this earlier this year on your Instagram feed about internalized misogyny, about reckoning with it within oneself. And that actually sparked one of the biggest conversations and one of the biggest, most popular segments we've ever had on Shameless. And I want to know, did you ever turn around and think, I've been doing this subconsciously. I've been kind of feeling this competition with other women and I need to rewire that kind of thinking. No, that's not really how my internalised misogyny came out. My internalised misogyny really just came out quite blatantly in slut shaming, which is what I used to do like eight years ago because I just didn't understand the concept of patriarchy. I wasn't a feminist. I thought I was. And my, I had a very warped sense of what I thought was right for all women. And also I'd just been sexually assaulted and I think I didn't I needed someone to blame something to blame and I just chose the wrong target and that target was very sexually explicit women rather than the system itself but my I never compared myself to other women I've always loved working with other women I feel much safer around them than I do around men and a lot of the women a lot of the people that I admired so much growing up were strong funny smart women so I've always thought that we should make space for each other and I've always made an effort to call in other women and make sure that I support them I've never that's never been I'm so glad that that's never been how my personal misogyny has taken place because I think it's very lonely Mm. have you seen it manifest in the women around you in the industry because I think there is this tendency when we're so full of internalized misogyny because of the system that we are raised in that we accidentally rip each other down yeah I've uh, I've very rarely worked with other women in particular who have treated me fairly and not tried to compete with me and not read too much into all of my behavior. And they would preemptively think that I would try to be competing with them or try and take them down. So then they would kind of act defensively before ever getting a chance to know me, before they ever would have an opportunity to realize that 
I am on your side here. Like, I want us to win. I don't need me to win. I want us to win because it's much more fun when we do this together. I'm not particularly interested in awards. I don't really care about magazine covers when I get them. That's cool because it's an opportunity to speak. But this industry is not something I ever planned on. I'd never wanted to be in this industry. It's something that I fell into. That was an incredibly happy and interesting accident for me. But I'm really just here to try and help other women. <laughs> like both within my industry, but mostly outside of it. Because I think that this, we have poisoned the well of culture and humanity so much. Mm. I feel like reckoning with internalized misogyny is quite a loving and freeing thing to do mm. for each woman. What have you done over the last eight years? I mean, you said you've come a huge way from feeling a bit slut shamey towards other women eight years ago to where you are now. What were some of the things that kind of shaped that attitude change, do you think? Following better people online, no longer following people who just made me feel like shit about myself or who put empty values into this world, which is pretty much most celebrities. I uh, started following activists and I started reading more and you know people like Roxanne Gay and Phoebe Robinson and and there are so many different people. Gloria Steinem, all these people had such an impact on me and I think it just helped me register how wrong I've been and I'm not someone who shies away from my mistakes or my own previous ignorance. I think that that's where the interesting part of humanity lies is in our mistakes and how we use them to challenge ourselves and how we progress I've never learned anything from what I got right I've learned everything from what I've gotten wrong and I lean into that because I think that a I'm not afraid of failure I think that failure is noble because it showed that at least you fucking tried and b I believe in human progress and if I didn't then what would be the point in activism this new culture of not believing in progress and and never ever forgiving someone even for the smallest mistake means that you must think that activism is redundant because what is activism if we don't believe in change? I was going to say, this is one of our favourite aspects of your activism, this idea that you always want to push for progress, but you also want to be really cognizant of your own fallibilities, I think. And you said to Variety, sometimes I do fuck up, but I always apologise when I've gotten it wrong. I learn and other people learn with me. Does that sense of getting it wrong ever instill fear in you or are you kind of a bit fearless when you consider that you may be getting it wrong in the future? I hate it when I fuck up in a way that hurts other people's feelings. So if my actions have been misinterpreted in a way or if I have misrepresented myself and it causes pain to other people then that that really bums me out and and I'm super hard on myself. But I never feel I never feel afraid of growth. I never feel fear of what other people will think of me. I, you know, I'm not in this for a popularity contest. I don't, I don't like really have an interest in being liked by anyone other than my twelve mates, <laughs> my boyfriend, and now my dog. And so those are the, those are that's my core people of uh, those who I wish to impress. But outside of that, you know, I think women in particular are so coded and taught how to impress everyone you must be likable all the time you must never be difficult you must be pleasing and, and nurturing to all of those around you and we're under so much pressure to do that and I like I have a job to fucking do I'm here to make change and that means that you're going to have very difficult conversations you're going to fucking rub people up the wrong way you're going to create a lot of friction around you both amongst people who are against you and even those on the same side as you I don't have time to impress and please everyone I'm just not mm. going to be people's company I'm, I'm here for a very specific reason and you know uh, what is that it's not show friends it's show business I think I feel okay <laughs> about activism so I don't feel fear and I feel I feel very 
I feel a bit proud of myself for the fact that I have been willing to just keep going through the amount I've gotten piled onto and the amount people love to shame me and lie about me and spread rumors about me. I'm so proud of the fact that I haven't done the thing that women are told to do, which is disappear and just hide yourself away and just, you know, Mm. shrink yourself and become small because that's what they want. And they always do this in particular to strong, outspoken women because they want to send the message. They want to send it almost like a flare into the sky that says to other women, like, if you speak out, this is how badly we will punish you. If you make a single mistake, even if you don't make a mistake, we'll spread a lie about you that will discredit your name and destroy you. It's a tool, it's a device used to take strong outspoken women who stick their neck out and chop it off so that other women feel too afraid to speak out. And I needed someone, like, I'm not saying I'm perfect, but I needed to see someone fuck up in public when I was younger. I would have put myself under so much less pressure had I seen someone be transparent about mental health problems, about making mistakes, about weight, about what's really happening in the industry. Transparency is my biggest key, even if what I'm showing you isn't always pretty. Mm. And I love that so much because as you, you've told The Guardian this year as well, that it's not an easy path, the one that you've chosen, that mm. you do get hurled up onto a pedestal. And sometimes that pedestal can feel a bit like a trap because this is your quote, it's very high and it's very easy to slip off. It's a long way down. Mm. Do you feel brave and are you proud of that bravery? Because to us, you just seem to have this incredible sense of self that you continually put yourself out there. And that to me is the definition of bravery. I think I am a brave person and I am proud of how much I've been able to withstand because trust me, there have definitely been moments where I'm like, oh, fuck this then. <laughs> <laughs> I'm done. I'm tapping out. <laughs> yeah. like, you know, you come up against people saying that's the most outrageous personal shit about you and they don't know you and they don't know anything about your life or your childhood. They make decisions. A lot of people think I'm actually Tahani from the good place and they think that I grew up in <laughs> immense privilege and I was just always this glamorous, you know, wealthy person who went to the best university it's like I left school at 16 I'm not fucking educated I grew up poor as shit in a broken home full of mentally ill people all of whom I was a carer for and so you don't know me and you think you do and then you say wild shit about me make a lot of stuff up journalists in particular female journalists put crazy hits out against me even that Guardian article was so unfairly written and one around the times was similarly they take all my words out of context there are definitely days where I'm just like oh fuck off then why am I trying to help any of you bitches but then I remember the bigger picture. And I think the thing that I, I'm glad that I have is the ability to maintain my focus on the bigger picture. And we don't do that mm. enough in our generation. We look at the micro, we don't look at the macro. We don't know, we don't seem to have the range to be able to zoom out and think, right, well, what is best in the end? What is the end goal here? Like we can nitpick all we want, but we have to, we can correct each other, but let's not nitpick each other to death to the point where we then never get to our actual end goal. So we're sitting there just fighting each other while our oppressor just goes on to just progress and progress and progress because they organize and they stick together. And so we have to figure out a better system of just being able to actually fathom a happy ending. Coming up after the break, What's it like going head-to-head with the Kardashians over laxative diet teas? And how does Jamila Jamil define success? But first, a word from today's wonderful sponsor. How do you actually withstand the experience of having other people spread lies about you? It's fucking hard. It's so hard. It's so frustrating. 
It's the only thing I don't like. I'm so fine with being called out for what I've done wrong. I'm so fine with it. I'm weirdly so okay with it. And I'm very grateful for the lesson. And I consider it to be a compliment when people call me out because I think that it means that they don't patronize me. They think I have the capacity to do better. But when people spread lies about you and when they gaslight you, there's no preparation for that because I just never knew that that was going to happen. I was never prepared for that. I was always prepared for being accountable for what I'd done, but never for what I hadn't done. And so that has been so strange. This whole like Munchausen's rumor and like all this other shit, like she's lying about her sexuality. Why would I do that? How would that possibly make my life easier? The way that these things spread and how much people believe in them is really fucking frustrating and offensive but it is also a systemic pattern that we've seen throughout the whole of history again take a strong smart woman and before they used to kill us now that they're not allowed to kill us they just discredit us discredit is the new death where do you go Jamila when you're having those awful days and I know that they've come for you recently when people have really nitpicked at you and spread lies about you Mm. where do you go where do you seek comfort I seek comfort in my house. I love, I'm a big homebody. I'm a super socially anxious person. And so I love being at home. I have a very comfortable bed. I don't spend a lot of money on clothes or things. I don't do drugs. So my big expense is in sofas and beds. I have a very cushy and like lots of memory foam and lots of like. You're amongst friends. I have a, te- I have a techie bed. You know what I mean? Like, like the height of technology bed so that I am comfortable because it's where I spend most of my time. Most of my best tweets and Instagram moments of activism have all been done from the comfort of <laughs> It's a good line for anyone to learn who wants to become an activist. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm too scared of I'm too scared of a crowd. So I, you know, I activist from bed, and you need to know that you can do that because a lot of people can't go out or they, you know, they aren't they aren't in a big city that's got a big protest. You can make a world of difference just from your phone. Donate, sign petitions, get loud. Mm. Of course, I know you'd be able to do all of this without your partner as well. But does it help to have someone in your corner who's there to back you up? He seems to be incredibly supportive and an incredible feminist in his own right. Yeah, he's great. And he's like so angry on my behalf, which is (laughs) (laughs) It's what you need. You need someone to like swear and like want to throw something with you. Yeah, he gets even angrier than I do. And he because he's very protective over me. And I don't read the comments about myself, but he does (laughs) and just sits there winding himself up. But no, it is extraordinary in this position to have two things. One of them is access to an amazing support network amongst my boyfriend and my friends. I live with a lot of boys that I've known since I was 19 and we live in a house together like a frat house um and that's great uh but also I have access to therapy and I think that that is a vital thing that young people need to have access to some sort of emotional mental health support because you know we all want to be activists now we all want to make change but no one ever tells you the dark side of activism which is that activists receive such an onslaught of defamation and unkindness and cruelty and once you stand out and stand up for something you become a lightning rod for negativity not just from the opposition but also from people who are doing the same thing as you there's a lot of competition amongst activists which is bananas to me it is the stupidest thing I've ever seen I can't believe how jealous other activists get of each other you just see it all in the field but I would say that 
if you are going to enter into this, know that it is very hard. It's very worthwhile and you can change the world, even just as one individual, even with 16 followers of Instagram. If you can just educate the fa your family and the people around you and those who have access to voting, if you're young, if you're too young to, you can change the world from your own household. But please make sure you have some source of mental health support if you can access it. In another interview you recently did, I think it was with the Headliners podcast, you said, if you speak out on one thing, people assume you must be an expert on everything and hold you to an impossible standard. Mm -hmm. How have you reckoned with the idea or the fact that your activism can't possibly include every single issue that is occurring in the world? I think I've just realised, you know, I made a lot of mistakes in the fact that I, you know, again, I think it's that woman people-pleasing thing and feeling of immense obligation to save everyone and look after everyone. As soon as I speak, started speaking out about eating disorders and mental health, then everyone was like, that's it. Now you have to save everything and everyone. And if you don't speak out on something, it's because you don't care or you're on the wrong side. And so I would panic and be like, oh, no, I don't want people to think I don't care. Like, I, I want them to know I care. So I would speak out about things that I wasn't yet at all informed on. It's OK to speak out before you're completely informed, but not when you have no idea what the fuck you're talking about. Then when you have a huge platform, you should shut the fuck up and go and read and then speak if it is appropriate because otherwise then you end up taking up too much space and you make a mistake and then that becomes the focus rather than the actual story so I think I've learned over the last couple of years just to make sure that I only use my platform and my voice where I can actually affect change not just to placate people so that they'll think I care but to only speak out where I can truly make a difference where I can actually raise money or I can change a law or I can make a petition you are just like feeding right into our hands, Jamila. It's like you almost know what our next question is going to be. So thank you for that. You're making our job just such a dream. Let's talk great about interviewers, you. by the way. Sorry. Oh, <laughs> the best research podcast I've done. You're great. Oh, thank you. Let's talk about you enacting change, not on your own, but from a movement that you began and that was kind of your brainchild. You have gone up against some of the most powerful and influential and arguably toxic celebrities in the world, particularly when it comes to toxic diet culture. NBC said in 2019 that you kind of backing yourself and going up against the Kardashians when it came to diet teas, as well as other celebrities, the Kardashians weren't the only ones to do it did more to expose detox tea lies than the FDA. Talk to us about that time. You chose to really back yourself to put yourself in the firing line for millions of Kardashian fans to come for you. How did it feel to back young women and get the change that they have been deserving of for so, so long? It's the most important thing I have done and ever will do is this fight against eating disorder culture it ruined my life it ruined my health uh, all these like drinks and substances and fad diets that I did when I was a teenager still have affected my kidneys my adrenals my bones my my fucking periods like I have my teeth like I've damaged my body so irreparably because of this culture that means nothing and didn't make me happy. I've been the thinnest you can be and it didn't make me happy. I've seen both sides of the spectrum. Happiness lies away from your body shape. And so because I've seen how much it can destroy the life of, uh, it's destroyed my life, but it's also destroyed the lives of so many of the people I admire most and love the most in the world. I will die on this hill. You can just prepare my gravestone now because this is the hill I'm dying on. So it, it feels 
It feels very comforting to read stories of people who've told me that they've changed their mindset about dieting or they've worn a swimsuit for the first time in 15 years or they fought back against their fat shaming parents. It feels good to know that I'm actually affecting change, but I've got so much more work to do because the diet industry is such a monster. But attacking it is my life's work. I heard you say recently as well, and I can't remember exactly where it was, but you said it's nice when you're behind the scenes when other actresses or musicians come to you and say, hey, I love the work you're doing. What sucks is when Mm. they don't kind of jump on the bandwagon with you publicly. What's that experience like? And talk us through that frustration of having people say, you're doing an awesome job behind the scenes. It's fucking annoying. (laughs) It makes me really (laughs) angry. And while I get it, because I know how difficult life can become for you once you do start speaking out about things and that then you've become this sort of like saint that is on this pedestal and people then expect you to live to these, you know, inhuman levels of perfection. I understand that the world has made it so difficult for women to speak out, but it bums me out so much, the fact that they are there watching my every word, sending me so many DMs of how inspired they are by my work or how my work has helped them. And then they don't, it's one thing if they don't speak out, but it's another when I see them do that, champion me and then actively perpetuate the same culture when I see Mm. them photoshopping their images, when I see them selling these detox or diet or fitness regimes, when I see them complain about the weight that they've gained during lockdown, like how dare you message me, support, and then be on the exact side that I'm fighting. Like you're, Mm. you are a double agent and you don't even know it because you're so hyper-normalized to this mentality. So that's the thing that really sucks is when I see them participate in the culture of setting unrealistic beauty ideals for other people to live up to that they themselves don't live up to because I fucking see them in person. They don't look like that. (laughs) Do you find it frustrating to be a celebrity sometimes? Do you like it or do you find it to be, I guess, a problematic culture to be tied up with? Because to me, you're almost like a celebrity who's the anti-celebrity at the same time, that you do so much good. Look, I have an immense amount of privilege and it would be absolutely insane for me to just grumble about the the huge access and and comfort that you're afforded as a celebrity. So I'm immensely grateful for those things. But I definitely I would I would feel very embarrassed participating in celebrity culture if I wasn't doing it the way that I'm doing it. I definitely consider myself to be the anti-celebrity. I like the fact that I don't affiliate myself with a lot of brands. I don't take the paychecks that I could. I feel I'm able to sleep at night because I know at least I'm using this for good. And truly, I've been a fat activist who was a fat woman who was a fat activist. And I was not listened to when I was a fat woman. And I was told I was just bitter and jealous. And now, and also I wasn't very famous. And now, now that I have this big platform and I am slender and I am able to be shot in high fashion magazines, everyone's listening to me. And mm. it is so frustrating to have been on both sides of that and to see how I'm saying the exact same words now, but as a thin woman, I'm listened to and almost like treated as if I'm Gandhi. <laughs> yet the same exact words were rejected and pitied before. And so I'm very grateful for the platform that you have. Look at Angelina Jolie. Look at the things that she's been able to raise awareness about. You think people haven't been activists in that space for tens of years, like for decades before she came along and said it they have but we don't listen to the marginalized we listen to the privileged about marginalized causes Mm. so it is gross but I'm doing what I can you can change more from the inside I think Mm. no for sure I'm really interested in what you just said about being considered almost Gandhi in this space when you initially started kind of pushing back against the Kardashians and there was this intense almost tsunami of adoration for you and you were put really really high on this pedestal were you terrified by that 
Yeah, I hated it. I was, the second I read a headline about me that said Jamila Jamil is the feminist hero that we need, uh, I almost threw up in my mouth because I was like, that is a nightmare because that's not what I am. I'm not the punisher. I'm not a hero. Like, I'm not a great intellectual. I'm super ignorant. <laughs> I'm just pushing back against what I think is bad. I'm just calling out something bad when I see it. It doesn't make me an expert on any of these things. I'm just trying to just say, hey, this isn't normal. This doesn't seem fair. This doesn't feel like an appropriate way to treat women's mental health or people's mental health. Like, oh, this doesn't feel like a right way to treat trans people. I'm just trying to use whatever privilege I have to say, ah, maybe there's a, a better way for us all to live. <laughs> I'm not, mm. I haven't come at this as if I am like Dr. Jamila Jamil. And people treat me as if I think I am this great savior and soapbox standing intellectual. And I'm not, it's a sign of how few people speak out that people mm. feel so distrusting of me when I do or think mm. that it makes me this profound human being that I'm not and don't profess to be. I'm just mm. saying, hey, this is a bit fucked. <laughs> I feel like positioning anyone as a feminist hero, and I feel like we've done it to so many women throughout mm. the years, it's just bound to end up in disaster as well because we kind of flatten women and we expect them to be perfect on every single issue and, as we mm. touched on earlier, never make a mistake. And if we're positioning someone as a feminist hero – they're never going to live up to that ideal. Like there's going to be something that we disagree with them on. Also, all of the people who made the biggest changes in history were so fucking problematic. Gandhi, <laughs> what a prick. <laughs> Not just Gandhi, but like Churchill, like all these different people who made these significant moves in time, you know, Mother Teresa, she's got a backlog of some terrible things that apparently she did. Uh, if you read The Missionary Position, like the, there are so many, which is an amazing title for a book. <laughs> But, uh, <laughs> um, but you know there are so many people throughout history who like they do they, they are not perfect people and so it's it's very strange this obsession we have with someone being the same I think it comes from our belief in like not our because I don't believe in this but the the I, I guess it comes from religion the belief in saints the belief yeah. in these like very likely made up people you know and what was written about them like people try to expect others to live up to actual Jesus like Jesus was a written character I'm sure there was a man who exist, did, who was Jesus. But do we know if he was that saintly? Do we know if he didn't have a snack on his 40 days? Do we? <laughs> <laughs> didn't have a little nibble of a berry? How do we know? <laughs> well, we're living up to the standards of a mythical creature. <laughs> so, and we're expecting in particular women to. Like men are so problematic, but we like to zoom out and be like, yeah, but overall he's a great actor or he's a great director or, you know, he's a great politician. So it's okay that he didn't do that. So like, we never afford that same luxury and privilege to women. Like, yeah, but she wore that thing that time or she said that thing or she gained some weight. So let's get rid of this bitch. Kill her. Kill her dead. Make her kill herself. Let's talk very specifically about Iway right now because mm -hmm. it has been an incredibly powerful institution for defending women and sort of like redefining how we consider and value ourselves. Has it surprised you in the last two years how much you've been able to achieve? Yes, it has been extraordinary. But just to be very clear, this hasn't just been me who's achieved it. Everything I've done would have just been one woman screaming into a void had it not been for over a million people who scream with me. They literally flood corporations or individuals who are doing something very dangerous, mostly corporations, for me and with me. So when I wanted to go after Instagram and Facebook, you know, because of their allowing you know people to advertise all kinds of dangerous, toxic shit, it was a mil like two, 250,000 people signed my petition in three days. 
I could never have changed that policy without all of those people. So I am the leader of very much so a community movement. And that is what I weigh is. But yes, I'm astonished that we have got we are in the process of changing two bills in the United States that would protect minors from detox and diet products, both boys and girls and non-binary people. And also we are working on a weight and height discrimination bill currently. And we've changed the global policy at Instagram and Facebook. And we're working on the other major platforms as well. Mm. I feel like you came in at a time when the advertising standards for young teenagers was so damaging and so toxic. And as you said, you did manage to change those policies through iWay. How do you feel about the state of Instagram and Facebook advertising for young people now when it comes to weight? Do you think there's a new frontier that you'll have to tackle with iWay or are you pretty happy with everything stands? No, everything's fucked. It's still fucked. I've got so much work to do. I've made a tiny bit of change. And I think the thing that I would say that I've been most effective at is just waking people up and just being like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I've never seen stretch marks on a TV, on on an actress's tits on TV. Oh, I, mm. I thought there was something wrong with me because I've never seen that before. Or when I don't Photoshop my spots or my cellulite or when I point out what's actually in these detox products and I'm able to like teach people that these are just laxatives. You just shit fire and then you can't shit again for another five days <laughs> and then it ru- ruins your bowels forever. I think that, that those have been the things that I've actually achieved is just being able to change a generation's way of looking at how fucking crazy the diet and detox industry is and like photoshop and facetune and just being like oh this is we were so hyper normalized to it before and i feel very lucky to have been successful and just going no this is hugely offensive and we're being we're being given extra homework to do in life that men aren't being given to do so therefore of course they are excelling beyond what we can do because we are piling under all these complaints about our aesthetic so that's been cool I don't remember what your question was. <laughs> you answered it. Everything's fu- everything's still fucked, but it's a little bit less fucked Sorry, since yeah, Iway okay. came on so, the scene. No, I, so I think Iway did a lot, but I feel like a lot of that work has been undone during lockdown, especially TikTok. Fucking TikTok, every 15 seconds, there's another fasting app. There's another, what is the rise in fasting? Fasting is so, like, I think there are some people who can do controlled, medically supervised fasts, and that's fine. And they need to for certain health implications, but... Jesus Christ, it is such a far slippery slope for an eating disorder for some 13-year-old who's looking at a fasting app who doesn't know exactly what she's doing, whose parents probably don't even know, and she isn't being medically supervised. This is really dangerous, but all these apps and these diets are just coming up all over the place. So I think TikTok is my next really big fight. I don't even know how long it's even going to exist because of what's going on in America, but I think that's the next big frontier for iWay to take on. I actually deleted my account on there because I was so appalled by what I was seeing that I was like, I can't endorse this platform right now. So I think that's really damaging. I do think we've taken a step back during the pandemic and people have really preyed on people's anxiety during this time. And no one's allowed to just enjoy their banana bread. Activism at its core is, I guess, the belief that things can change. I want to know what the one thing is that you have in your mind that you most want to change in all of the work that you do. I would I would love to be able to kill the inner bully in all women. Obviously, I would love to also be able to get rid of the outer bully, which I'm currently working on. But I think the truest end goal for this would be to not just destroy the external narrative for women but to change our inner narrative and to really teach women that they have so much profound worth and that they are they exist so far beyond the numbers on a fucking scale or the numbers written on a measuring tape I wish that I could teach women to stop 
beating themselves up. It's like we learn this horrifying narrative and like rhetoric about ourselves when we're old enough to turn on a Disney channel and see a princess with a two inch waist. And we learn those words so well that we say them to ourselves. We say worse things to ourselves than often anyone, even our worst enemy would ever say to our own faces. And it devastates me because of how much we get in our own way sometimes. We already have enough of an enemy in patriarchy. We cannot be our own worst enemy as well. And so I think being able to really appeal to women and make them understand you will have so much more time in the day if you step away from this obsession. I was obsessed for 20 years and I was less funny, less fun, a worse shag, a much worse shag. Not that I'm an amazing <laughs> shag now, but you can therefore imagine how bad a shag I was before. <laughs> and like I was a bad friend. I was consumed. I was obsessed. I was depressed. And to be able to step back from all of that and to be able to no longer I don't really look in a full-length mirror I don't participate in like figuring out what my size is I wear loose baggy clothes I have become so much more financially successful I've become as I said a better shag I'm a better friend I'm a more present human being I'm a better businesswoman I have better ideas I'm more creative I have more fucking sleep I have more hours in the day I don't take you know one of the my favorite moments of just mini feminism was when at The Good Place, they wanted, they expected the actresses to be in for an hour and 40 minutes for hair and makeup. And I was like, how ugly do you think I am? <laughs> do you think it's going to take an hour and 45 minutes, essentially, for me to look half the same as the men on this show? So I'm going to come in for the same time as them and I'm going to sleep because if I don't sleep, I'm not going to be funny and I'm not going to be very nice. So <laughs> I'm, going to, I'm going to come in. And so I would come in an hour and 15 minutes later than the other women on the show because I was just like, I'm not doing this. I'm, wow. going, I'm going to sleep. And I did. And it, I looked OK. You know, yeah, my hair was very <laughs> fucking messy on the show. But other than that, I was fine. You looked great in the good place. Jamila, this is our final question. It's one that we ask every guest on mm -hmm. Shameless. What is success to you? Happiness. Happiness is truly the biggest success. I know that's really cheesy, but I've actually been every other kind of successful. And I know that sounds like a weird flex, but I have. I've been famous. I've been thin. I've been celebrated for being thin. I've been celebrated for being societally deemed as beautiful. I've had all of the the it girl shit going on. I've, you know, I've lived all the lives that you're supposed to live in the magazines I've had all the fancy expensive clothes it was all bullshit and I still tried to kill myself through the height of that and so I now know that striving towards mental health as far as you can towards it is my goal and and truly just contentment and gratitude that is the end goal and it's something that's actually very hard to achieve in our current world of consumerism where we teach people in particular women women being 80% of the market, we teach women to never be grateful with what they have. Otherwise, they won't go out and buy more. We're taught to, we're taught that we are broken so that we will go out and buy things that can quote unquote fix us. And that is such immense bullshit. And so I think contentment, gratitude and happiness are everything to me now. And mm. the other stuff doesn't mean a thing. Jamila, thank you. Thank you for coming on our show. Thank you for all the incredible work that you do. And it's just been a huge privilege to have you and have this conversation with you. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me on your show. Like I, uh, I wish more journalists were like you. 
Oh, it's been, and I think it says a lot. Like you didn't have to come on when we reached out asking to your team, asking if you'd come on. We were absolutely blown away when they said yes. So thank you. I think it says a lot that you would give us your time, given how massive your platform is and how relatively small ours is in comparison. So thank you. You do not know how much this means to us. We all have to rise to the top together. Do you know what I mean? I think that's part of my ethos of making sure that I I speak to everyone and speak to as many people as I can because. It's it's lonely doing the ship by yourself, and I really admire what you're doing with your podcast. And so, thanks for having me. Mm. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this in conversation episode of Shameless with the incredible Jamila Jamil. You can check out her amazing I Way movement on Instagram at I underscore Way. Also, she has her own podcast too. It is also called I Way, and you can check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Assuming, of course, you haven't already. If this is your first time listening to Shameless, then hello. You would have heard Mish in this interview too. And every Thursday, we sit down with someone we consider influential and ask them all about their life and career. On Mondays, we release an episode that is a wrap in the week that was in pop culture. If you loved this chat too, may we recommend you head to our website for a full back catalogue of interviews we've done with people we admire. We will pop the link to help you get there in our show notes. In the meantime, we will be on Instagram at Shameless Podcast. We will see you guys on Monday. <laughs>